Hey everyone, just before the show gets started, I just wanted to put this little clip in the start. We had a number of technical issues while recording this. We had a Google Hangouts start looping already recorded content about halfway into the introductions. So you'll hear that there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, hey, we're back section after about two, two and a half minutes. That's when we had to kick off a second Google Hangout to record everything. Throughout the podcast, we also had problems with Google Hangouts breaking up. So some of the some of the text, uh, some of the speech is a bit garbled. Just to give an idea, Len's introduction is a little is a little garbled, and he's from CloudAfrica.net. We are changing the way we're recording the podcast from next week. We are going to be looking at recording through Skype so that we can bypass the issues we've had on Hangouts over the last while. Not too much of an excuse, just more of a heads up that we apologize that the quality isn't as good as what the last two weeks have been. But we are definitely working on it. Thanks. Yeah, welcome to episode four of the ZA DevTech. Oh, wow, I'm even stuffing up the name of the podcast tonight. <laughs> Right, let's try that again. And I'm so not going to edit this out. Welcome to episode four of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. My name is Steve. I'm here with Peter Harmsheis tonight. So how's it, Peter? Hello. And Len from Cloud Africa. Hey, how's it, everyone? So tonight we've decided to discuss dependency injection and dependency injection frameworks. Where the you know their pros, their cons is are they a good thing, are they a bad thing, and how we you know how, how we work with them. Peter, I am going to defer to you because you've done a lot more DI than what I have. I'm still relatively new to it, so I'd like you to kick us off, please. Awesome. Okay, so first of all, since we've got Len on the show, I'd like to ask him to give us an introduction. Tell us who you are and where you're from. Okay. Well, thanks. Yeah, my name's Ben. I'm from Cloud Africa. I've got a crazy history. I've done all sorts of stuff from embedded C systems to large Java enterprise applications. Yeah, I've worked at research labs. I've currently building cloud infrastructure. You know, one of my one of my passions is is networking and sort of more like mid to low level system stuff. So I've uh, I've been building Cloud Africa and giving that a go. Yeah, I think that's a little bit of a summary there. Awesome, fantastic. So tonight we're actually going to talk about dependency injection. That seems, um, and like the previous episode, well, one of the previous episodes, we actually spoke briefly about it, and uh, Stephen actually prompted this this conversation. We were talking about something today, and it just, just seems to come up every now and then, and I thought it would be a good idea to, to weigh up awesome. the pros and cons. So can you actually... Give us a summary do you, of dependency injection, like DI. Okay, we are back. It seems. Back. Awesome. So, uh, so Peter, what do you what do you understand uh, dependency injection to be? <clears throat> what do I understand dependency injection is basically a, um, a a form of inversion of control. It's basically passing in your dependencies via other constructors. And in some frameworks, you can do property injection or property dependency injection. 
Because maybe let's take a step back then and say, like, what, what are dependencies? What do you mean by dependencies? Ah, so a particular dependency might be uh, like a service dependency or like a, um, like a, I don't know, like a repository dependency. So, for instance, let's say you have a data provider. That data provider might have, well, your implementation of a particular object might have a, a dependency on, like, a data provider. Right. A database connection, in other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, you, so instead of me getting the database connection myself, you're going to give it to me, right? Yeah, correct. So we're okay. like in, inverting the uh, the control. Okay, cool. So, why why would you you know what's what's the kind of reason for doing this? I guess is the real question, right? <laughs> so that's that's actually like a quite an interesting thing because. The one argument that keeps on coming or popping up is like testing, mm-hmm. makes like it makes testing easier. The the other part is like you actually getting rid of some coupling, right? Well, no, you you're not decreasing coupling at all. I'm still talking to exactly the same stuff I was previously. Nothing nothing about that's changed. It's just the the moment of creation is is not mine anymore. I don't yeah, yeah, control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't create the things, you're just going to give them to me, right? Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah. And and it, it, it's kind of born in these large software systems that have many, many services, many database connections. We're using message queues. and We've got a lot of complexity that we want to manage. So instead of everybody managing their own complexity, we can sort of centralize lists of dependencies in a way. I think yeah. that, that's a big... Uh, use case for dependency injection, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the one of the reasons why this conversation has been prompted is because previously I've worked at a company, like and specifically uh, a .NET shop, right. that, had, that had used a dependency injection to such an extent that it's actually become quite hazardous in the sense that, so generally the, the way that these dependency injection frameworks work is like you have an interface and you have a concrete implementation of that interface and you kind of marry up the two in some glorified dictionary that knows about the object drafts, right? And what tends to happen is that you take it a step further and then you start wiring up those dependencies based on some conventions. Like for instance, I database repository has an implementation of SQL repository and so as long as you find the, I don't know, the first implementation of that interface, and that's mm-hmm. how you kind of wire up your dependencies based on either convention or, you know, first implementation you find or the only implementation you find, and if it doesn't, it just breaks. Yeah. And then what starts happening is you take it one step further where you start scanning, like, almost these configuration DLLs that is your dependency graph setup. Okay, so the the DLLs are exposing some kind of metadata that you use and construct other parts of your system. Yeah, correct. So let's say you have a configuration DLL that says, okay, for for instance, this is our data layer repository or or our data layer configuration uh, graph. You would include that, and then what happens is your dependency injection framework would actually go and scan Config assemblies, and based yeah. on that, will like do the dependency graph wire up. Okay, so you you could change that in in by just replacing that DLL, you could get a different setup, right? Yeah, correct. 
and then what starts happening is kind of you like blur the lines because you actually don't know what's really happening. It's nothing that's explicit. Um, mm. So what I the one thing I I like about not going that far is that you actually lose the explicitness of actually what's happening. So for instance, you there's no way for you to tell other than to ask the dependency injection framework. What did you wire up for this particular interface yeah. to know what's going on? So I don't know if you found something similar, so a similar situation, or... So I'm going to jump in really quickly. So as somebody who's very new to a dependency injection framework, this is the thing that's driving me insane. So we have some tests, and then I need to look for something, it's like, oh, but the, the the DI framework is resolving it. Just go and have a look in the configuration. Okay, go and search through the configuration. I can't find it anywhere. There's no explicit, hey, this marries up to this. And they go, oh, that's one of the convention-based ones. I'm going to stab you because I've been looking for code for the last five minutes now. Why can't I just look at it? So that is the big pain point that I have been feeling with uh, a dependency injection framework. I completely see where the benefits are. We can split stuff up. We can test those things individually. I, I do see the benefits of it. But some days I wonder whether the pain, well, whether that benefit is worth the pain that we suffer. Yeah, I, I, so let me just go on the record and say I don't like it. I really don't like it. I think that it just confuses the code base. Like you're saying, Stan, it's very hard to read the code. Yeah, I, I look at the code. I, I can't tell what's going on in that piece of code. I have to have some other kind of knowledge. So then, then what starts to happen is you, you get a lot of this config information floating around. So in Java, they've got the Spring framework. Um, you mentioned config assemblies in .NET. Um, we start to externalize, and we have this entire world of, of being able to describe our dependency graph in some sort of way that's not the language I'm working in. So it's some sort of XML document or it's some other system that's um, not visible to me immediately. I've, I've worked on large Java systems where half code base was XML. And that XML drove what was kind of happening in the Java application. So you looked at the Java application, and you had to kind of remember what the dependency graph was or what actual services were being injected into the piece of code you were trying to, to figure out. So dependency injection looks great in the, in the beginning because it starts to make things very, very easy. To, to get started. Peter, I believe you, you work in AngularJS, and I think this is one of the, the initial problems in AngularJS. It's kind of easy to get started, but then as soon as you want to do something a little bit more complex, it gets really kind of strange, I would say, to, to wire up the, uh, the bits somewhere else so that they're injected correctly into an, an Angular module or something. Have you had that experience with Angular? So my viewpoint actually comes from a couple of different backgrounds and scenarios. So Angular right. being one of them, but the the other one, like I said uh, previously, I was uh, was in a big .NET um, shop down here in Durban, and the one thing that also keeps on popping up is that as soon as you start making things like that simple, like the the DI framework makes things slightly more simple to get an object, 
what happens is your constructors start growing. So after a while, you'll have this service that has a dependency on these 12 services that in turn has a dependency on another five services or uh, I, I don't know if that if if you've guys seen it but it, like I said once you start making that simple then you just yeah it's just mental like you just carry on mm. and oh no take this dependency now oh no 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 take this dependency and it's like because you don't type it you don't feel the pain so <laughs> all you do is you're just adding more dependencies as you need them and it's yes. With great yeah. power comes great responsibility, right? Oh, yeah. Except when we get given great amounts of power, we don't realize we need to be responsible until it comes back to bite us. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the other scenario would be in Angular as well. Angular, I kind of see the same problem. And, and, so, and so the real, the real yeah. pain point here debugging stuff, right? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's great. I, I go in, I, I say, look, I've got a lot of code here. I'm describing all these dependencies, and that's quite neat, you know, because I can look in a piece of JSON or an XML file, or, or it's discovered through some sort of implicit pattern, and then, you know, I follow those conventions, like you were saying, Stephen, come together. The controller gets instantiated and stuck in at the right place. But now the system's running. It's actually live. People are clicking on the website. They're calling these services. Messages are flowing around, and things start breaking, you know, and somehow. At some point in the application, I've end up with the wrong, you know, instance of of the, you know the wrong subclass or uh, mm. the wrong configuration information has been given to me. You know, if, if I'm injecting strings or something like that, trying to debug that at run find is incredibly difficult because it's not easy to to mentally model what happened through a big DI process to get to the point where I understand what the runtime is actually doing and I can start to reason about it. I end up having to do a, do a lot of logging at that point just to say, okay, look, this is what I actually got. This is what the DI framework gave me. Where, uh, Peter, you were talking about the large constructors with, uh, you know, sort of exposing all the parameters out there, which, are, first of all, I think is a good thing. Uh, you know, you don't want too much of the stuff hidden inside a class. But the second thing is knowing what got passed in when those classes got constructed is really tricky at runtime. So the, the debugging story and the, and the runtime observability of these things I find to be very tricky. And, I, and I'd much prefer it to be explicit so that when I look at the code, I can say, okay, I'm, this is the exact uh, database connection I'm creating. I'm calling this exact service. Maybe the config strings are different, but that's simple. I can those from a, you know, some sort of config store, be that a network config store or just local config variables, and uh, rather than trying to use some complex reflection or DI framework, just keep it simple. That's always a good rule. Mm, I kind of like that. And the other, um, the one thing I wanted to ask you, Len, is you've been playing around with Go for a bit, right? Yes, yes. That's my. So, <laughs> The one thing that I that I kind of started noticing that in like as soon as you start moving away from like these statically typed languages like for instance C sharp and you're moving towards more of the functional languages immediately you want to start bringing those concepts across so something like dependency injection or generics or something like that and the one thing I found is that 
even though there are dependency injection libraries for Go, do you find that people are just using something like partial application or function currying to solve that particular problem? I mean, you, you, this, is, this is a complex subject. Um, no. So dependency injection is frowned on in the Go. It's not the Go in the Go world. It's not the Go way. It's, it's, yeah. it's not have a, a sort of Go blessing because Go is designed to be simple. Um, and and I'm using simple in the sense of Rich Hickey's simple versus easy talk, which if you guys haven't heard it, just go listen to it right now. Pause this podcast, go listen to it, come back. Okay. So dependency injection is easy. It's not simple. I think that's the real problem with it. And in Go, they, they really like to keep things simple. So it's front on, rather make it explicit what you're calling and, and what... Um, parameters are going into the method so that all the uh, bits and pieces you need to think about the current piece of code are visible here on the page. It's uh, one of the reasons, for example, that Go doesn't have exceptions. It doesn't throw exceptions. is because you lose the sort of you know, visibility of what's happening. The exception bubbles often go somewhere else. And they're, they're really just trying to avoid that code from somewhere else has affected what I'm doing here. So yeah, there was a web framework in, in Go called Martini, one of the original ones used uh, used reflection and, and independency injection quite heavily. And uh, Code Gangster, the guy who wrote it, has subsequently uh, reformed his ways and written a, a new web framework that's not uh, using DI to be more you know, acceptable in the Go world. Okay, so like idiomatic go, right? Or idiomatic, yeah, that's the word. Okay, okay. My my mind just kind of stalled a little bit, Len, when you said that go doesn't throw exceptions. Yeah, that yeah, is, yeah, that is that is awesome and terrifying to to me all at the <laughs> same time. Because I've I've looked at Go a little bit, but you know oh. the, the the last thing you look at when you're learning something new is error handling. So. <laughs> I hadn't seen anything, and I figured it's because I hadn't dug deep enough yet. But mm. that is that is really awesome and interesting, and way off topic. So, <laughs> so my, my 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 next question is: so dependency injection is frowned upon in Go. I don't know enough about functional about the functional world to ask really intelligent questions. So, so if this is a bit silly, I do apologize. So if, if you're using a, an external Go module and you wanted, to, you wanted to wrap that purely for safety's sake, so you, let's say you're using an external email module, you want to wrap that in such a way that should that maintainer stop you know, maintaining that module and you want to switch to something else, how would you do that with Go? Is that still something that's that's possible, or is this now leaning away from the dependency injection realm? No, I think you're you're absolutely on topic here. So, uh, what is dependency injection kind of forcing you to do? It's saying it's a good practice to program to interfaces, right? Hmm. I can have an interface. Yeah, I yeah. to that interface, and the DI framework will figure out which actual implementation I'm going to get. I, I don't know and I don't care which email provider 
uh, is coming to me, but uh, the DI framework will somehow instantiate one and give it to me. I call methods on an interface. That's all I care about. So now Go has interfaces. It doesn't have classes. It has interfaces. So that's that's cool. You just figure out what the interface to this email module looks like. You write to that interface, and if at some point later on you need to switch out to uh, a different actual email provider or whatever it is, as long as it implements that interface, you're good to go. So nice. programming good interfaces is healthy. Yeah, that's you know, goes. Uh, it's it's so full of puns. <laughs> um, <laughs> so programming to interface is good. Figuring out which instances to to actually use, um, try and make that explicit. Don't don't sort of depend on on some third party to then push you know actual concrete instances into your code. Take take control. I think that's more the idiomatic go way. Yeah. So now, interestingly enough, we, we we've kind of come down a little bit hard on dependency injection frameworks, but people wouldn't be using them that much if they didn't have a lot of positives. So, are there any really distinct, large positives that help uh, you know outweigh the negatives we've been talking about, Peter? I. I think Peter might just have got load shed. Um, oh, oh his, his mic, mic, his mic died. Okay, well that's unfortunate. Well, I mean, I, I, I can talk to that for a second. Um, good reasons to use dependency injection, sure. Um, you know, when when you got millions of lines of code, when you got a really large code base, and you're dealing with a hundred databases or even you know, ten databases, let's say. I mean, most systems that we're, we're kind of facing here in South Africa are small. We, we don't deal with more than two databases, three databases at most. But imagine a system which is dealing with two databases, literally ten distinct database connections. Now, managing those um, database connections can be really... Where do you, where do you store all those connection strings? Is that different in testing? How do you get all those database connections into the app and change them? And um, yeah, the dependency injection can solve that problem quite quite neatly. Yeah, so I, I, I think you've got a distinct point with that. Uh, it's something Peter and I have been chatting about, you know, possibly for for another episode, is specifically looking at the types of applications that developers in South Africa deal with generally mm. um, and then the things that I see guys in Europe and, and the states dealing with they just seem to have a whole different I don't want to say user base but they, they, they seem to have a whole different outlook um, on problems on applications that they're writing. So, I mean, I know when TJ Holloway Chuck stepped away from Node a few months ago now to focus on Go, I thought it was a really strange thing for him to do because if he's a Node guy focusing on web apps, why is he jumping across to Go? Because he kept it, he, he, he was. He was insistent that the concurrency in Go was a hell of a lot better. So for the type of applications he was writing, that was going to be better. And I kept thinking, mm. although you can do a web application in Go, it, mm. it didn't seem to be the norm at the time. So what I'm getting at is I think maybe although we use 
dependency injection frameworks for for larger applications. Um, sometimes I think maybe we do it because it's the thing to be done, and we know that that's what the what. You know the, the the big names overseas say you have to do this to have a maintainable code base, but oh. our implementations are so different to what they have and what they do over there that maybe we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Well, I I think that's a great for a podcast. It really is, and it's yeah, you're getting close to my heart here. Um, you know, we should get what's his name, Chris, on, and he can talk about the experiences from Mad Mimi and sending millions and millions of emails. But in general, you know, the systems we're dealing with here in South Africa, we don't have a million users on them. We don't have fifty thousand users on them. Uh, we're not yeah. dealing with terabytes of data. We're dealing with gigabytes of data. So a lot of the times, we're sort of copying these practices and principles from systems that are dealing with 100 terras of data and 50 million users, that's just you know way out of the scale of, of anything that would ever even be possible to do here in South Africa. Now, if you, of course, if you're focusing on developing apps for you know, the American banking market or you know, European hospitality, that's different. And then, of course, you, you want to adopt those kind of practices and things. But in general, yeah. I would say that in South Africa, we don't have scaling problems. It was interesting to me the other night at the developer user group. I asked, you know, a hundred people had worked on you know systems of a million lines of code. Now, if you go work at Google or you know wherever, million lines of code is uh, the pet projects, right? <laughs> you know, you can round up like fifty guys to work on your little project of the weekend. Isn't that how Angular started? I think it was just someone's like twenty percent time project. Yeah. Look at it yeah, now. I think you so. know. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a couple of hundred people involved across industries on it. We yeah. don't have that kind of scale here. And so you're looking at dependency injection in particular, if you're dealing with code bases of 5 to 10 million lines of code, 50 million lines of code, um, your techniques are going to change. You're going to want different ways to manage that much code. It can get out of hand if you don't have some good basic techniques. But when you're dealing with, you know, 10,000 lines of code, 50,000 lines of code, you might not need those techniques. They, in fact, they might hinder you. They might get in the way. Mm. I suppose the, 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 the final point on this probably is when do you start with dependency injection? Do you do it from the start not knowing how big your code base is going to get? Or do you get to a point and you go, crap, you know, we really should have done uh, dependency injection you know, we should have used a framework from the start and kind of stop developments and implement that. You know, at what point do you go, we need a framework, we can't just do this and manage it manually? It's hmm. a very good question. I think, well, personally, I'm not a fan of frameworks. I prefer the idea of libraries that I can, you know, I, I want to be in control of the code. So I want to use a library, it provides good kind of, service to me where something like a, a dependency injection and containers that provide that tend to dictate how my code is going to be written and that does make me uncomfortable. So dependency injection I think is one of the things you you have to have a sit down and think about up front. You, it's, it's going to be such a fundamental change to your system 
that if you have to do it at some point, it's going to be a big change, especially on, on bigger systems. Um, and most of the time, it's going to be kind of dictated to you by the framework that you're using. For example, if you're using Angular, well, you don't really have a choice. That's the way yeah. it works. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but, but if you want to use it, use it up front and then uh, build your code in that style. Trying to add it later is going to be really tricky. Yeah. So from what I've seen over the last few months, that that definitely holds true. Um, okay, cool. Just for everybody else's sake, quickly, um, Peter oh. Peter's microphone died. So yeah, Peter's Peter's done. But thank you very much, Peter, for setting up tonight. Um, Len, I don't know if Peter ran you through the 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 picks that we do at the end. Have you got any picks? Picks? No, not at all. Um, pick go. <laughs> I've got a I've currently been uh, playing around with the Atom editor, the, that open source editor from GitHub, cool. and uh, it's it's pretty good. I'm really enjoying it. But no, no. Cool. So, so yeah, I, I also don't really have a pick. I've got half a pick. <laughs> and again, I'm blaming load shedding and traffic for today. That is my scapegoat for everything. Uh, mm. I was listening to the 200th episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. And I'm going to I'm going to choose that episode purely because it has Aaron Patterson on it, and I find him hilariously funny. And uh, Katrina Owen had mentioned that she'd started l looking and working with Go full time, and Aaron Patterson chimed in from the side and asked how it was going. And being stuck in traffic and being in a bad mood, that just diffused everything, and I could not stop laughing. I thought it, I thought it was great. But Len, thank you very much for popping on and having a uh, having a chat with us. I apologize for the the technical difficulties earlier. Um, and then, yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would really love to have you. Um, and I'll I'll chat to Chris and and chat about. You know where we started going down. What applications overseas look like, and you know having th thousands of concurrent connections. Um, I'm sure that's something you've started. You know, an issue you've started entertaining with the work that you've been doing with Cloud Africa over the last while. Um, but I'll I'll give you I notice. That'll be great. Yeah, that'll be great. I'll give you a lot more notice than what you had today for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool, Len. Thank you very much. Um, would you? Just like to give people um, an idea of where they can find you online if they want to contact you or follow you online anywhere. Um, yeah, Twitter is just at Cloud Africa. Um, CloudAfrica.net is where I'm busy at the moment, so you can uh, get to me through the contacts page there if you really want. Um, but I hope to be coming out of my shell a bit more and maybe more posting as well. We'll we'll be in touch about that. Okay, that's awesome. And yeah, if anybody wants to find Peter online, Peter is G uh, P Charmesheis, um, as he likes to say. Nobody can spell it, so it'll be in the show notes. And then if anybody wants to follow me, it's at Stephen MacD underscore code. Cool. Thank you very much, Len. Once again, have a great evening further. Thanks. Cheers, man.